17 in the Gospel according to John. Been some time now since we started this book. We're taking our time going through it. I don't even remember exactly when we started. It had to have been at least a year ago that we started in the Gospel of John. But we're working through it slowly but surely. Uh, I do this for a number of reasons. Uh, one of those is it forces me to preach on things that I would avoid like the plague if I did some other uh, method of choosing passages to preach from, that sort of thing. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's, we're keeping it the context in which it's given. Instead of removing it completely from everything else in the, in the rest of the book that surrounds it, we're keeping it very much in the context in which it is giving. And so what we're, what we're learning today is building upon what we've learned before. And what we learn today will build on what we are to learn in the times to come. Many of you have been Christians for as long as you can remember. Many of us, on the other hand, can remember a time when we were not. Uh, and I can tell you this, that, well, let me read the passage first and then I'll get more into this. So we're in chapter 16, we're starting with verse 16 and reading through uh, the end, uh, or two through uh, verse 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they are saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but uh, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask uh, nothing of me. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Uh, I would just be speaking according to my own experience, but I would imagine that my own experience is probably very similar to yours. Uh, and this morning, I could say this, that, that, that some of the greatest joys I have ever experienced in my life, and as a matter of fact, I would be so bold as to say the very greatest joys that I've experienced in my life have been the joys that I have experienced as a believer. But I would also say to you this, that some of the greatest anguish and the greatest sorrow that I have felt in my lifetime has also taken place 
since my conversion. And I would say to you this morning that even though I thought I knew what love was before, uh, and that I knew what sorrow was before, that since I became a believer, I have experienced those things in ways that I had never even had a clue existed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I live a good bit of my life on the extremes. Times of very great joy, and at the same times, on some occasions, times of very great sadness. I mean, there's nothing that, that gives us more joy than seeing the conversion of someone else to the Christian faith, like we've experienced with Chris Atkinson not so long ago. What a joy it was to experience all that and go through all of that with, with Chris and with Debbie as well. But let me tell you again that some of my, my greatest sadnesses have been, not just as a Christian, but as a pastor. And one of the things that saddens me most of all is this, is when I see a brother or sister in Christ who settles for so little when they could actually very easily have a whole lot. I don't know if that applies to you or not, but I would encourage you to give some thought to that. Just think about this. The lives of these men, these 11 men now, because Judas has exited the picture, so of these 11 men, their lives are going to be bent and twisted and stretched in ways over the next few days that they could not even begin to possibly imagine where they are at this point. Remember, they're still in the upper room with Jesus. And he's just revealing some things to them, some last-minute things. You know, when, when people understand that they are on their deathbed, and Jesus knew this, at this point, Jesus would be dead within 24 hours of the time he's speaking these words to the disciples. His death is imminent. Well, you'll see very often is some people stop doing much of anything, when they have that sense that their death is very soon upon them. Other people, on the other hand, seem to try to cram everything they can into the last little bit. And that seems to be very much what Jesus is trying to do. A lot of what he's telling these guys, he's been, he's been, been telling them all along for three years. And, it, and much of it seems to not really have settled into their mind and their heart. This is almost as if Jesus is trying to ram, cram, jam every little jot and tittle of things important one more time before these guys with a hope that maybe this time they will actually remember and learn the things that he has laid before them. He knows that these 11 men to whom he is now speaking will in just a very short time, be immeasurably shocked, disheartened, saddened, and depressed beyond belief. 
And I would say that they're going to experience those things to a degree that none of them has ever likely experienced them in their whole lifetime. But Jesus understands something. It's absolutely necessary for them to go through what they are about to go through. Their world has been created through their experience and their living with Jesus for three years now is going to be turned upside down on its head. You know, the words that we read here are certainly are very dear, but I just want to remind us that Jesus has been telling these guys these things all along. He's spoken about his departure in, in chapter 7, verse 33, and in chapter 13, verse 39. He's told them before what is about to happen. But it obviously has not settled in. I would imagine at this point his heart was wrenched. That his heart was bleeding because he knew what these men would go through in the next few days. And they didn't. He knows that they will be absolutely overcome with grief. They will believe that at his death that the end has actually come. But see, Jesus knows the rest of the story. That is that he knows on the other side of that sorrow and grief that they will experience joy and fulfillment in ways that they cannot even begin to conceive of at this point. Jesus sees and Jesus knows. And, he's, he's, and again, he's been telling them all along what was going to happen. These guys are going to undergo significant life changes in an extremely short period of time. Their lives are going to change drastically, unbelievably. And I would say to you this morning that we should all have some sense of understanding of what they go through. Because the birth and the growth of every Christian will mean that we will experience some of the greatest trials and at the same time some of the greatest tribulations that we will ever experience in our lives. We're going to see this. We know this. We know that uh, when things begin to unfold, especially when it's time that Jesus is crucified, these guys desert him. They scatter like rats on a sinking ship. 
And Jesus knows that's what's going to happen. But he also knows that one by one, they will come back. And they will be changed. They will not be the same men that they were before all of this took place. And they will be true to their calling to carry and bear the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. See, the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus will change these men into the men that they need to be for Christ, that they never would be apart from it. And I want to remind us this morning that John is not talking about events and things that someone has passed on to him. That these are the words of John written down in a book that he heard himself with his own ears from Jesus Christ. This is not secondhand knowledge. This is firsthand knowledge. John telling us what he experienced. And I want to challenge this again with this idea. So it's so easy for us to become ingrown and mostly concerned about ourselves and the things that affect me are the things I'm concerned about, the things I pray about, uh, and this, that, and the other. But I want to challenge us all with the idea this morning that our trials and tribulations have an impact upon all the believers around us. That when we're growing through problems like Larry is now, he needs to understand that he's got a Christian family here who loves him and wants the best for him. We all know what trial and tribulation is like. We've had it. Some of us more than others. But there's no one in this room that has not suffered at the hands of this fallen world in one way or another. And sometimes very greatly. See, Jesus understands that these experiences that these guys are going through are an absolute necessity for them to get to where they need to be. And we need to look upon the trials and tribulations that come on our, into our own life in the same manner. God only gives us what is good for us. He only gives us what we need. We may not like it. It may hurt we may want to run away from it. But God gives us, every one of us, where we are, what we need all the time. Why? Because he hates us? Because he's a bully? He's just a meanie? He likes to see people suffer? No, it's because he knows far better what you and I need than we know. He is our loving father and he will only give us those things that will prove in some way to work to our benefit. We may not like it, 
we may not understand it. I mean, can you imagine the transition that these guys are going to go through in this week? Their, their whole world is going to be taken and just torn away from them and turned upside down. They're going to become disillusioned. They're going to become discouraged. Let me just tell you this. I want to remind us this morning that suffering is one of the principal means that God uses to force us to grow as Christians. Whereas we otherwise would not. We would just sit where we were feeling good and, and wonderful about everything and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not where he wants us to be. He wants us to be moving closer and closer to the cross of Christ and to his resurrection, and to his eternal glory with every day. And he will do whatever he has to do to make that happen. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares about you. He's, he's not willing just to leave you where you are. And where sometimes we seem to be satisfied being. Well, Jesus says some things to these men that seem to be very confusing to them, that he's going to go away, but then he's going to come again, and, you know, and, and this, that, and the other, and they seem to be very confused about it. But I just bring it to your attention now. It's not the first time he's told them this. These two other times in the book of John, he's told them basically the same things. It's like it's gone in one ear and out the other. You ever have that problem? Well, he tells them that he's, he's, he's going to go away, but then he's going to come again, but then he's going to go away. Sounds pretty confusing. But we understand what he's talking about. He's talking about that for a period of time, death is going to separate them from him. But then he's going to be resurrected from the dead. And he again will gather them together and he will speak to them face to face. Yet again. But at the same time, he, know, he knows that after the resurrection, he's only going to be here for a short time, that he's going to send back into heaven. As we've seen before, he assures them that even though these things are going to happen, that he's not going to leave them alone, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. To indwell them and to guide them. Have you ever felt like Christ has failed you? Have you ever felt like Christ has let you down? I don't know about you, but as I study these things, I see such a reflection of myself in these guys. 
Like we make the same mistakes that they made. We repeat the same errors that they've made. There are times when you and I will wander. There will be times when we will utterly and absolutely fail our Lord Jesus. And sometimes we will do that very greatly in ways that we can't even imagine, in ways we can't even believe we would do it. But see, the confidence we have is this. It's not in ourselves. It never has been in ourselves. It cannot be in ourselves. Our confidence is in him. That he will always bring us back. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing these back to the, to these guys back to the facts that he's already shared with them before that they have obviously forgotten. And he will do the same thing for us. I just want to assure you this morning, if Jesus got a hold of you, you will not leave him. You might wander. You might drift off course. You might wonder. Jesus will always bring you back home. Always. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, then I'm in big trouble. See, my friends, our confidence and our hope can never be in our own strength and our own abilities. Our only confidence and our only hope is in Christ Jesus alone. Let's face it, we don't have the ability or the strength or even the desire to do what so often needs to be done. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, the best Christians know but little of their own hearts. The best Christians know but little of their own hearts. In other words, the very best Christian, they really don't understand themselves, their own heart very well at all. Those people that we would acknowledge and call to be the super saints. People like J.C. Ryle, for instance. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that very many people have. Is we really, let's just be honest, we really do not know our own hearts all that well. And far less the hearts of other people. I mean, how often do we see the sins and failures of other people very clearly and at the same time seem to be blind to our own? 
you know, one of the, one of the charges that the world would be, bring against us is this, is that we are just a bunch of judgmental people. You know why they say that? Because, in fact, we are a bunch of judgmental people. Very often, it's easy for you and I to forget about grace, that we're saved by grace and God's grace only. That's the only thing that makes a distinction between us and the grossest unbeliever out there. God has chosen to love the unlovable when he chose to love you. He chose to love the unlovable when he loved me. See, there's an art to growing as a Christian. Growing as a Christian is not something that's going to happen if you just sit on your tail and do nothing. Being a Christian is being active, not passive. Now, there are times when we are passive, and it's a good thing we are passive sometimes, but we can't be passive all the time. Being a Christian involves a lot of things, and one of those is being called to action to doing, to living out the faith in Christ that's in us in real and tangible ways. So how do we do that? Well, it requires that we depend less and less upon me and more and more on him. Less and less on me, and more and more on him. To die to self. And yet we still wonder, don't we? We wonder how it, how it is that, you know, John and Peter and James and all these other guys, how in the world they saw Jesus do what he did and they heard what he said and it didn't seem to sink in. How often have we thought, gosh, if I had been there, it would be so much more easy to believe if I had been there and experienced Jesus myself and saw him heal people miraculously and I heard him pray and I heard him speak. But the fact that these guys are going to scatter when things begin to unfold here is simply a measure of the depth of the sinfulness of the human heart. You know, sometimes we think sin is just that we're a little bit sick. You know, we're 90% well, but we're 10% sick. Or maybe we're 50% well and we're 50% sick. But what the Bible teaches is what the words of Jesus teaches is this, is without Jesus, we are 100% sick. We need him desperately as much as we can have of him with every breath that we take. He is the only thing, he is the only one that has ever in all of eternity made much of a difference in anybody's life.
But when he is there, he truly makes a difference. I mean, sometimes we have this thought, let's be honest, if I had been there and heard and saw, ain't no way I would have fallen away. It would be nice to hear the words from the mouth of the Lord, and it would be nice to see him do his stuff. And if that happened, then certainly I would believe. I wouldn't have any doubts anymore, but let me just tell you, if you were one of these guys, it would be way off course, far more than they are. I've heard people say this, and every time I hear it, it makes me cringe. I'm going, oh my gosh. Oh, Lord, don't say that. Please don't say that. You ever hear anybody say, I could never do that. I could never do such and such. I could never do something like that. You are on thin ice. If you think for one minute that you're not capable of doing the most heinous things you can conceive of. And the only thing that has kept you from it is the fact that God's hand has been on you. He holds us back. God has been restraining sin in this world ever since the Garden of Eden. Actively, in some ways, and passively in other ways. Reality, guys and gals, is this, is if God was not doing that, Cain would not just have killed Abel, he probably would have killed Adam and Eve too. And that would have been the end of the story for everybody. I just want to warn everyone here about thinking too highly of yourself. It's very easy to do that. It just really, really is. It's always easy to look around and find people that don't seem to be doing quite as well as you are, and it makes us feel better when we do that, right? I know I'm not perfect, but look at so-and-so. I know I'm not doing all that well, but look what so-and-so did, or look what the, or look, did you hear what so-and-so said? If we were as concerned about our own sin as we are about the sins of everybody else, this place would be a perfect place. Please don't ever think, I, will, I could never do that, I would never do that. God might let you see the real you, and it won't be. I wish there was some way that we could actually put ourselves in the shoes of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as all of these events were unfolding.
I mean, there's nothing, there's no analogy I can use to even begin to describe to us the meaning and the depth of the things that we're anticipating. Used to be when my parents would discipline me, they would always, almost always say this before they did it. And you probably know what I'm going to say. This is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. Now, let me tell you something. I seriously doubted that. (laughs) And I'm sure you probably did too. But just think of what God has done. That Jesus suffered the wrath of his Father. Do you think for a minute that it didn't grieve the Father's heart to do to the Son what he had to do? Do you think that the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, didn't grieve and mourn these things? Can you imagine being God the Father administering the punishment that was due to you and me on to his very son, Jesus? Let me just say this. This is a measure of a couple of important things. And one of those is this, is just how nasty, mean sinners we are. How, what awful people we really are, even though we don't think we are. That it required the Son of God to live and die for us. That's how bad we are. And let me tell you something. If Jesus only saved one person, if he had only chosen to save Chris Atkinson, Jesus still would have had to go through everything he did just to save Chris. I mean, how in the world can you and I ever question God's love for us when we consider what he has done for us? And let's be honest, we do sometimes. Have you ever thought something like, Father, how could you let me go through this? If you really loved me, you would protect me from things like this. You and I, we can rest assured of some things, and one of those is this, is that what was absolutely necessary was actually done fully and absolutely and totally. Nothing more, but absolutely nothing less. Now, when we consider all that Christ has done, a couple of things. One, it just shows us just how much God hates sin. 
But at the same time, it's also a measure of how much God loves us. He loves you with a love you can't even begin to understand. He loves you beyond whatever expectations you have of loving are. He knows you far better than you know yourself and the people around you who think they know you so well. And sometimes we're like these disciples. We're all for Jesus for a while, but something happens and then we scatter. And some of you have experienced some degree of that scattering, but guess what? God has brought you back. He will always do that. Once he lays hold of you, he will never, ever let you go. Ever. We're trying to understand the things of God in human terms, and let me tell you, that always falls so far short of the mark that it's hardly worth talking about it. You ever think about this, that I can envision this, that the whole time the father was, in essence, whipping his son Jesus, that he was there also holding his hand? Well, we're celebrating a Christmas again in just a couple of weeks. We're celebrating the greatest gift that God has ever given to this world. Himself. And more specifically, we're celebrating the greatest gift that God has ever given to me. The greatest gift anyone has ever given to me. The gift that is far greater than any gift I've ever gotten or even can imagine getting. A gift that, that surpasses every human measurement in, in every way conceivable. It's so great and so grand that we can't even conceive of it. It's beyond our reach. Don't be discouraged when you look and you see that I very much am like these disciples. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they're doing a whole lot better than I am doing. See, that's what it's all about. That's what the gospel is all about. It's all about God loving the unlovable. And hallelujah, praise God, that includes me. Has your sorrow been turned to real joy? 
People look at your life and they describe you as being this very joyous person, this person that, that doesn't let even the toughest times get them down, that there's joy in the middle of even the greatest crisis. Is that how other people look upon you? Joy is a big part of being a Christian. A joy that is rooted in the understanding that God loves me. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. I don't understand why. I don't understand how it could be. The only thing I know is it's true. And how do I know it's true? Because he has told me so. And he does not lie. He does not mislead. And I just hope through Christmas that we all remember this. That this is all about God loving you and me. Not just people 2,000 years ago. That when Jesus came into this world, you were on his mind. And you have been ever since. And you always will be. Loved and cherished and cared for forever. 